everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Tony Messenger, a reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch who is heavily focused on the issue of fines and fees and is the author of the recent book, Profit and Punishment, How America Criminalizes the Poor in the Name of Justice. Welcome. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. So how did you come upon the issue of fines and fees in the system? Well, it sort of started with with Ferguson in 2014. Uh, I was the editorial page uh, of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I was the editorial page editor of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch when Michael Brown was killed on August 9th, 2014. And, And one of the things that we wrote about a lot on the editorial page at that time was some of the underlying angst in the protests coming from the fact that municipal courts in in multiple municipalities throughout North St. Louis County were really nickel nickel and diming poor black people to death, just constantly trying to uh, use their court system and their traffic system in particular as backdoor tax systems. And it was having devastating consequences on people's lives. They were constantly being jailed because they couldn't afford to pay. And then they would miss a hearing uh, and get a warrant out for their arrest. And then they would be arrested and taken from one jail to another jail to another jail. Um, and it was, it was really an eye opener into this problem. And I think that's when a lot of people nationally sort of recognized more in the context of police brutality and race that there was a real problem with how we were doing traffic enforcement in this country. So that was sort of the, 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 the beginning introduction to this concept. And then in 2018, starting in late 2017, early 2018, I started writing about these people in rural Missouri who were being also jailed on relatively minor misdemeanor charges. And then they were getting a bill for their jail time. And, and this just blew me away. And, and frankly, it, it continues to blow a lot of people away when they read my book and, and, and when I talk about this issue that, yes, a lot of jails in the United States of America, in counties all over the country, charge people after they come to jail, just like you get a bill, just like you were in a hotel. Um, and then what happens, what's so devastating about our system is when people can't afford to pay that bill, they end up back in jail. So that's what I started reporting on in 2017 and 2018 uh, throughout rural Missouri. And ironically, the victims of that system were mostly poor and white. 
and 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 I came to recognize that there is this dichotomy in our criminal justice system and the unity. The the unifying factor is that poor people are being abused. And it's kind of interesting because in your book you even kind of almost apologize for focusing on poor white people um, because in a lot of ways the story of criminal justice problems is a story of people of color getting locked in the system. But I actually like the fact that um, you focus so heavily on poor white people because I think a lot of times uh, people don't have a connection to some of the problems in the criminal justice system. And, you know, people can kind of relate to this issue that, you know, if you don't have a lot of money and you're getting assessed all these fines and fees, you could be in real trouble. Well, the section of my book you're talking about where I kind of apologized is, is this moment where I'm, I'm going throughout rural Missouri and, I'm, and most of the victims that I'm writing about are poor and white. And, and I come across a couple of black victims who were really being abused by the same system and their stories were compelling. And I specifically didn't write about them for a while. And the reason was the Missouri legislature, I thought I had a real opportunity to get the attention of the Missouri legislature. And the Missouri legislature is dominated by white rural Republicans. And so I needed to write about people that looked like them, people that might be their relatives, people that might be their constituents. And, and it worked as a strategy. The legislature ended up getting engaged in the issue and ended up passing a law saying that, that, that it is illegal in the state of Missouri for judges to threaten people with jail time because they can't afford to pay their, their previous jail bill. So, so it worked. But, but I had some, some, some real residual guilt at the time because these other victims were just as important. And this problem I know now, having researched the book, affects people of color more significantly uh, as a national problem. Um, but, but at the time, I was trying to get the attention of the Missouri legislature. And, uh, you know, in my book, two out of the three of my main characters are poor white people. And, and, and one of my characters, Sasha Darby, is a, a poor black woman who used to live in South Carolina and now lives in the Boston area. And I kind of felt like as I was reading your book, like I could kind of see how the world of poor white people has kind of moved the way that they have. Uh, I, I don't know if you, you kind of get that sense as well, or if you were too close to it, but I, I felt like I was kind of reading a history of the last eight years of, of this country. Well, you know, the people who are affected by these schemes, they know what's going on. They're used to it. And they just sort of feel like, the local criminal justice system has passed them by, treats them as, as so many cattle to try to collect money from them uh, and, and, and put them in jail. I, I told a story in the book about a, uh, the Saturday Night Live skit. Um, it, was, it was during the, uh, the, the 2016 presidential election uh, that, that Donald Trump won. And it was this, this skit on uh, Saturday Night Live, one of the Black Jeopardy uh, um, skits. And Tom Hanks was a white contestant on the show with two black uh, female contestants. Um, and he was wearing his red MAGA hat. And he was just this, 
this rural redneck from from somewhere uh, in 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 rural America, and you could just sense how the the this the skit was going to happen you know you had this sense of oh boy we're going to you know this is going to be great they're going to really make fun of the the rural trumpians and in fact that's not what the skit did the skit was so effective because it showed that you know really poor white people and really poor black people have a lot of the same experiences he was getting these answers right um in a way that that the that the black contestants understood because they had some of the same poverty experiences. Um, and that's one of the things I hope people, you know, take away from this book. Criminal justice reform is becoming a very bipartisan thing because people are understanding that there's a lot of reasons, reasons that resonate with Republicans, reasons that resonate with Democrats, reasons that resonate with white people and with black people, that we shouldn't be abusing poor people in the name of justice. We shouldn't be using our courts as backdoor tax collectors. So for those who haven't read the book yet, I mean, in what ways do these really, you know, for a lot of people, these are, you know, annoyances, you know, fines and fees. Oh, I got to pay, you know, my $300 uh, speeding ticket. Oh, should I pay it in three installments or do I just bite the bullet and pay my $300 now? Um, but, you know, for people that $300 is a lot of money, that, that's really devastating. How does that then lock them in to this problem? Well, it starts with with bail for a lot of people. So the way cash bail is applied in too many jurisdictions across this country doesn't actually fulfill its constitutional means. And what happens is poor people who get arrested on on minor charges who are no danger to their to their community end up stuck in jail because they they can't afford cash bail. Then you add on to that that most states underfund their public defender systems. And so while this poor person is stuck in jail because they can't afford bail, they're waiting to meet with their public defender so that the public defender can file a motion to reduce the bail so that they can get out. But, but they can't meet with the public defender for a week or two weeks. And that public defender has so many clients that they barely have time to meet with their defendant. And so eventually, after a period of a week or two weeks or 30 days, the prosecutor comes to this poor person who's stuck in jail on a misdemeanor, this, the kind of charge that those of us who can write a check would not be in jail for. And they say to this person, you don't want to be here anymore. This jail sucks. You, you want to go home to your kids and your job and, and your car and your house if you still have those things, if you haven't already lost them during the 30 days you've been in jail. Why don't you plead guilty to this charge? And you'll get out with time served and you'll just be on probation. Well, what poor person stuck in jail wouldn't say yes to that? So they're presented with an option that is a bad legal option that somebody with money would not face. And then they sign on the dotted line to get out of jail. Well, two things happens at that point. One, in many cases, they get a bill for their jail time that may be several hundred or several thousand dollars. And if they can't afford that, they are threatened with more jail time. And then they also get a bill for all sorts of fines and fees, mostly fees that have nothing to do with the dispensation of, of justice. These, these are not 
uh, monies that are intended to uh, to serve as a deterrent for future criminal activity. These are mostly fees that the legislature has added to the judicial system to raise money for all sorts of extra things. For instance, one of the things I, I talk about in, in the book is, is a $3 fee in Missouri uh, that has since been ruled unconstitutional, whose only purpose is to raise money for retired sheriffs. Um, and, and, and so legislatures have added all this money. So the poor person gets out of jail. They now have this massive bill. And even if they don't commit another crime, they face all sorts of potential judicial jeopardy and more jail time if they can't afford to pay for their private probation company to supervise them, if they can't afford to pay for their jail bill, if they can't afford to pay for all of the fines that are that are heaped upon them. And, and, and the consequences then are devastating because these poor people having pled guilty to a misdemeanor that many of us would never have pled guilty to because the, the evidence wasn't there, because we can afford to plea bargain it, whatever the case is, poor people end up back in jail simply because they're poor. That's why I, I, I talk about this as the, you know, the new American debtors prisons. Uh, there are a lot of people in American jails who are there because they couldn't afford to pay the fines and fees uh, uh, given to them as a bill when they got out of jail after they pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor. So what happens to these people? They're stuck in a cycle. So a lot of the people that I write about they didn't commit another crime, but their life became much more difficult. They lost their job. They live in an area in which they they maybe can get a minimum wage job. Some of these people, unfortunately, have drug addictions. And so they have to battle uh, that drug addiction while the cloud of of all of these fines and fees and court system hangs over their head. And and, and they their poverty is made worse by the criminal justice system. Um, all of the people that I write about, not all of the people, but almost all of the people that I write about in my book ended up having more jail time uh, 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 presented to them, forced to go back into jail because of the financial repercussions of being unable to pay their fines and fees, not because they were out there uh, uh, committing more crimes. And that is a common situation uh, throughout the United States. So, and, and you mentioned this in your book, and I often get, you know, when I try to bring up these issues in my own writing, uh, people who say, well, if you can't, you know, uh, do the time, don't, uh, don't commit the crime. Uh, how do you respond when people just lack empathy and, and say that they shouldn't have broken the law in the first place if they can't afford to pay? Well, it's, it's hard because some people just aren't willing to listen to, you know, to the reality of what's going on in the world. But, but I try to ask them, I was like, okay, so let's take Brooke Bergen, one of my main characters in the book. She stole an $8 tube of mascara from Walmart, uh, ended up doing a, a year in county jail because of it, and then getting a $15,000 bill for her time in jail and, and being threatened with even more jail time. So I said, I, I will say to people when they write me uh, after I write about people like this, do you believe that the penalty for stealing an $8 tube of mascara should be the death penalty? Should we, should we kill people? Should we give people the chair if they steal an $8 tube of mascara from a Walmart, which is a misdemeanor? And of course they all say, oh no, Tony, that's ridiculous. You're being ridiculous. And I said, okay, so we've established 
that that within our criminal justice system, there should be a range of punishment and people that do really bad things should get, you know, harsher punishment and people that do, you know, minor things, small misdemeanors shouldn't get serious punishment. So so what happens if you know, is a year in jail enough too much for well, that seems seems like a lot. OK, so what if somebody does their time? They, they, they fulfill the, the theory behind that statement. If you can't do the crime, don't do the, or if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. They did the crime. They did their time. They get out of jail. Shouldn't they be allowed an opportunity to come back into society and support their families and everything else? Is it reasonable that we should then punish them because they don't have $15,000 to pay for their jail? Uh, a jail that, by the way, is supported by a variety of other taxes. And and eventually, when you get into that with with folks, um, they come around, at least they, they a, a lot of the folks that I've talked to over the last few years have, because I've been writing about this so much. Um, and eventually they see the one character that they identify with and they realize, oh, wow, uh, boy, you know, that happened to a nephew of mine. Um, that's that's pretty unreasonable. I kind of see the point. I kind of see where you're going. Um, the other thing that happens, and I write about this in the book too, uh, that's important and, 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 and complicated in our current political climate because we're so divided, is it's important to have people who care about this issue who speak in a Republican tongue or speak in a Democratic tongue, who, who have some credibility within those realms, talk about the issue in the terms that they use. Um, uh, an example, I, I, I grew up Catholic and, uh, for a period of time, I was a youth, uh, leader at a church I, I, uh, belonged to in Charlotte, North Carolina. There aren't a lot of Catholics in Charlotte, North Carolina. And, and, and the youth group at our church, uh, did a thing with youth groups from other churches and synagogues in the area. Uh, most of whom were, were evangelical Christian uh, uh, denominations, where we went to each person's church and had the youth leader from that person's church talk about what does baptism look like in our faith tradition? What does confirmation uh, look like in our faith tradition? What does communion look like in our faith tradition? How do we sometimes talk about the same things but use different words? And it was a, it was a fascinating way for a bunch of people who grew up in different churches to understand how similar many of our faith traditions were as compared to just always focusing on the differences. In criminal justice reform, it's important to have uh, 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 people from the ACLU or the Koch brothers who believe in these ideas, who believe in fixing the system so that poor people aren't abused, be able to go back to groups within their own political realm and talk about these things in terminology that their followers or fellow believers understand. Yeah, and that was kind of the point I was trying to make at the outset here of why I felt it was valuable to be covering the stories of poor white people because, you know, we, we've already been kind of um, sensitized to the issues of people of color in the criminal justice system, at least some of us. And, uh, but you don't hear enough of the struggles that poor white people have. And, and you're right. I mean, you know, being able to speak in that language gets a whole different audience all of a sudden. 
and you're meeting with these Republican leaders in the legislature in Missouri, and they're able to say, yeah, okay, these are my constituents, you know, this is an important issue. Whereas, you know, if you were talking about people in Ferguson uh, facing the same problem, they might not have the same reaction. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's been the fascinating thing as I've continued to write um, about various elements of criminal justice reform over the last three or four years, there really is a widespread bipartisan belief in doing some of these things. There are conservatives and liberals who believe in bail reform. There are conservatives and liberals who believe that private for-profit probation companies shouldn't be used to help put more poor people back in jail. Um, there are white people and black people, conservatives and, and, and liberals, Republicans and Democrats, um, who believe that the courts should not be used as backdoor tax collectors. Um, and sometimes they, they speak in different languages and they don't necessarily um, find certain messengers credible. I mean, I remember one of my first couple of meetings with some of the uh, white rural Republicans who run the Missouri legislature who were interested in the columns that I was writing on this topic. We had these very slow um, dances with each other where we, we, we tried to develop enough trust to, to, to share the information so that they could pick my brain on what sort of legislation they thought they could pass in the legislature. Uh, and I could help introduce them to some of the people that were, you know, that really understood uh, the underlying issues. And it was complicated because in today's political environment, just the fact that, uh, you know, that I work for the newspaper that I do uh, makes it hard for some people to trust me or that somebody has an R behind their name or a D behind their name makes it hard for other people to, to, to trust them. And so, you know, we had to go through that process of, of uh, gaining a little bit of faith in each other so that we could do some serious work on these issues. You had some amazing stories like uh, the, the small uh, city that almost existed just to be able to drop the speed limit down far enough to trap people into tickets. Uh, can you share that story? Yeah. So there's multiple cities that I, I, there's a lot of people, I think, that, that have had this experience in different places in America where they've been caught in a speed trap and, and they have a town that that famously exists just to, to, to raise money for this. So the one the one that used to exist in Missouri is called Max Creek. Um, and it was a city that didn't even have a police force. Uh, and it's near Lake of the Ozarks. A lot of people around the country uh, go there for vacation, big, huge lake in the middle of Missouri. Well, Max Creek uh, happened to be in an area where a lot of lawmakers were driving from southwest Missouri to Jefferson City in the middle of the state. And some of these lawmakers were getting these speeding tickets because Max Creek realized, hey, wait a minute. If we drop our speed limit from 45 to 25 and hire a couple of cops, we can make all sorts of money. And after a few years, they realized that Max Creek was getting almost all of its revenue from uh, traffic tickets. And they were using that revenue to hire cops to arrest more people 
uh, on traffic tickets to, yes. to, to raise more money. It was just this, this cycle that was repeating itself. And eventually the Missouri legislature got wise to it and, and started the process that continued after Ferguson of reducing the amount of money that a city can depend upon on revenue from traffic tickets so that the police department and the courts are not being used as a backdoor tax system, as a fundraiser. Um, I, as I write about in the book, uh, have the occasional lead foot and have been pulled over in a couple of these cities, uh, um, uh, Edgar Springs in, in Missouri. There was, I, I was stopped in a city uh, um, uh, outside, I forget the name of it right now, but outside North Carolina, going to visit my son at a, at a Marine base. Um, and, and, and I tell the story in the book of by the time I got home from getting that speeding ticket at the town in North Carolina, I had a bunch of solicitations from lawyers in that town, including the former mayor of the town who probably invented the scheme um, saying, hey, you don't want to pay for this speeding ticket. We can help you. And it's just this this um, this amazing system where everybody's in on the game. And it's all about just raising money for the city and raising money for the lawyers and raising money for everybody except for the poor people who get stuck because they went 45 and a 35 or, you know, wh whatever the case is. And, and, and that's just one of the points that I make in the, in, in the book is that we shouldn't be using the criminal justice system as a fundraiser. If we really have a public safety issue, whether it's speeding or murder or, you know, uh, theft or whatever the case happens to be, drug abuse, um, then, then we should des design things to, you know, to try to improve our public safety. But, but to try to use that system as a fundraising tool is just anathema. It shouldn't happen. And it has devastating effects on poor people um, every time that, that, that a local body or a state body decides to, to use the criminal justice system for that purpose. Why is it so hard to gain a handle on this problem? Oh, because it's been around for so long. Um, I mean, th there have been fines and fees in the criminal justice system uh, for as long as the criminal justice system has existed, but it's, it's really gotten worse um, as I write in the book, since about 2008, since the last recession. And so, so many state legislatures have added fines and fees to the criminal justice system that it's really hard to undo the system. Um, I don't write about this in the book because it, it, it came about after uh, the book was done, but there's a piece of legislation in New York right now in the state, in the state house in New York, um, uh, filed by a, a Senator Julia Salazar, who's a Democrat in, in the state Senate in New York. And, and the legislation is called the End Predatory Fines and Fees Act. And that piece of legislation tries to get rid of all the fines and fees that exist in the court system. And in order for that to really work, you have to do that at the legislative level. Uh, uh, in, a in a state legislative body. And if you get rid of all the fines and fees, you're talking about millions of dollars uh, in, in a state budget. And so you have to have lawmakers willing to either do without that revenue or find other revenue sources, other tax sources, whatever, in order to uh, replace that amount of money. That's a hard 
problem to deal with. It's not just a matter of judges saying, I'm not going to put poor people in jail because they can't afford these fines and fees. It's about undoing years and years of legislation that they created those fines and fees to begin with. Um, and you've also talked about bail and you mentioned it earlier. Um, and one of the interesting things you cited was uh, a study, I think it was out of Kentucky, uh, where um, basically they found that the longer you're in custody pre-trial, the more likely that you are to recidivate, to commit more crimes, uh, the harder it is to, when you get out, to get your job back. And, uh, and, and so actually, contrary to what a lot of people think, um, you know, if you're released pre-trial, the more likely you are to be able to, uh, you know, connect with your family and keep your job. Um, and so um, that's kind of the opposite of the way most people think. Yeah, I just wrote an op-ed about this in the Washington Post uh, about a week ago. And, and it's really frustrating because uh, as a member of the media, I've seen this happen. I've seen it happen in, in St. Louis. It happens in New York, in New Jersey, in California, any place where there's been a push for bail reform, you're going to get immediate pushback from the police union and the, the sort of traditional tough on crime crowd. And what's going to happen and what always happens is there will be one anecdotal case of some person who's let out on bail that commits a violent crime and they become Willie Horton, you know, the famous uh, 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 former uh, defendant who was let out on parole that that uh, became a, an ad in a presidential campaign. And there will be big headlines about person out on bail, uh, you know, commits domestic violence or commits murder or whatever. And there's all of this hoo-ha and, and anger over one anecdotal case. But there's actual real data that the Arnold Foundation produced in 2013 in a long-term study looking at, at Kentucky low-risk defendants that shows that when, you're, when you let people out of jail, when they don't spend any time in jail, when they're low-risk, they're facing you know, mis mostly misdemeanor or, or, or non-violent felony crimes, and instead of being stuck in jail, they're able to continue their employment, they're able to continue their life with their families, uh, do all of the things that the rest of us would do if we're charged with a crime uh, instead of being in jail, those people are significantly less likely to commit more crimes than people who are held in jail on bail. And that study is the most comprehensive one that I have found that, that other researchers that I've talked to have found. And, and it's clear, our public safety is made better overall by, by holding fewer people in jail on cash bail. And again, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of people in jail are not there on violent offenses. They're there on, on, on misdemeanors, sometimes felonies, but, but not necessarily violent ones. And, and they shouldn't be held in jail unless they are a danger to community or there is a legitimate real risk that they will flee and not show up on their warrants. In New Jersey, after voters there uh, reformed their cash bail system, uh, the, the, the state judiciary had to produce a report every year starting in 2018 that says, hey, you know, what happened to our jail population? What happened to crime rates? Did people show up 
for their court dates and bail reform in New Jersey worked. The, the, the court's report said that crime did not go up statistically. Um, the jails were significantly uh, uh, lower populated. People stayed in jail for a significantly lower amount of time, and they were still showing up in their court dates about the same percentage as they were beforehand. So bail reform works. And if it doesn't make us safer, it at least doesn't make us less safe. Uh, as a community. And so, uh, you know, that's one of the arguments that I think often gets lost when we see these stories on one anecdotal piece. The Arnold Foundation uh, study from Kentucky from 2013 is just, it's an eye opener. And, and when you think about it, it just makes sense. If, if, if you don't have to go, I mean, this is a, a, a minor example, because most people don't get jailed for uh, a traffic ticket, but I got a traffic ticket several months ago. Um, and because I'm a person of means and knowledge, I knew to email the prosecutor and say, hey, what can I do to get this? I, I didn't want to have to pay a speeding ticket and have my insurance rates go up. So the prosecutor says, well, send me your, your court record. So I knew to go to the local DMV office, they would print out my court record. I got my court record. I emailed it to the prosecutor. The prosecutor said, I'll drop this to a non-moving violation. I had to pay a $300 fine, which is really the point. They wanted their money, um, but I didn't have an effect on my criminal record and I didn't have an effect on, on my insurance. And so I had no general effect on my poverty situation other than I had to write a check for, for $300. When poor people in the same circumstance um, don't have an ability to get out from this, sometimes they get jailed, even over traffic offenses. There are poor people who get jailed uh, when they get pulled over for, for speeding if it's high enough or if it's a DUI or whatever else. And, and, and they're unable to do anything while they're in jail and they lose access to their children and their car and their income and everything else. And so it makes complete logical sense that somebody who's stuck in jail for 30 days and has all sorts of repercussions is more likely to commit some further crime than somebody facing the exact same crime who wasn't in jail for those 30 days and they were able to continue to work and make money and pay their bills and take care of their family. Um, you know, I, I don't need a study to tell me that that makes sense, but I've got a study that tells me that that makes sense. Um, and, and it means that that bail reform actually done right could make us safer all across the country and save all sorts of money that we spend on mass incarceration that could instead get spent on uh, other public safety measures. So whose story of the many stories that you told really stands out to you? The one that really got me going and I think got people in, in Missouri interested when I was writing these columns was Brooke Bergen. Uh, Brooke Bergen lived in Dent County in the middle of Missouri. She was poor. Uh, she's somebody who battled drug addiction. She had had an interaction with the courts because of drugs. But in this particular case, she, she, she stole a tube of mascara from Walmart. She got arrested. She ended up in jail. She was able to get out of jail, but but she had to uh, fulfill all of these pretrial release um, responsibilities assigned by the judge to a for-profit probation company. And these for-profit probation companies, they exist on a business model that says they need repeat customers. Well, how do they get repeat customers? They put their customers in jail. 
And so Brooke Bergen has to call into this, this, this company and drug test. Well, she's a drug addict. It doesn't matter that she wasn't arrested on a drug charge. She's got she's to do these drug tests. One, she has to pay for them. And if she can't afford to pay for them, she's going to jail. And two, if, if, if she does take it and she fails a test, she's going to jail because she's violated her pretrial release. Well, that's what happened to Brooke. Over this $8 tube of mascara, she ended up in jail five days at a time. 10 days at a time, 20 days at a time, several different times because she couldn't fulfill all of the pretrial responsibilities. And eventually the judge just said, the heck with it, I'm sending you to jail for a year. And so she did a year in, in the county jail for shoplifting. I didn't meet Brooke until she got out of jail and she ended up being this story of a person who um, was threatened with jail time again because she owed $15,000 for her jail bill. And, you know, that story really resonated with people because they just understood, wait a minute, okay, you shouldn't shoplift, that's not good, but um, what public safety or taxpayer purpose does it, does it serve to put this person in jail and then spend money on marshals and court personnel and judges and a full courtroom every month to require people like Brooke to go to the courthouse and uh, pay their 50 bucks or whatever they can afford to pay. And she's never going to be able to pay that $15,000. And so Brooke was tied to the system uh, forever. And so she did her crime. She did her time, but she still had to come to court month after month. And I went to the court in Dent County and it's the whole court is full of people just like Brooke who are basically there to pay the judge their money. Um, and what a waste of, of time and energy and public resources. So how do we solve this problem? Well, you know, we can start with 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 simple actions. The, the if if judges were to just agree in all cases to fulfill their constitutional responsibilities and make sure that every poor person has an ability to pay hearing before they threaten them with jail time, either at the beginning of the process with bail and not using bail as a as a punishment tool, or at the end of the process after they plead guilty and realize, you know what. This person can't afford to pay these fines and fees. I'm going to waive them. Judges can do that in almost all jurisdictions right now. So, you know, you know, that's I, I focus a lot in my book on on judges uh, because I thought a lot of the criminal justice discussion elsewhere was focused on on police and prosecutors. And so I think judges could step up and do a lot of this right now. Um, and it's it's interesting that the the. The people with the black hat in my book, in many cases, are these rural judges that are that are sending these poor people to jail. And yet in both Missouri and Idaho, two very conservative states, the Supreme Courts of those states ruled unanimously that judges should not be sending people to jail simply because they're poor. So I think that's the first place where we start. The, the, the second place has to be bail reform because that's really the, the beginning of the system. That's when poor people really end up paying a different price for justice than the rest of us. We have to implement bail reform and only use bail in the most serious violent crimes and in cases where, where we really have a fear that somebody's not going to make their court date. That's the only constitutional purpose for bail, and that's what we should use it for. And then the third step and the harder step um, 
is to change state laws as it relates to assigning, uh, charging all of these fines and fees. We should follow the example of the bill that's in New York right now, the End Predatory uh, Fines and Fees Act. We should, uh, we haven't talked about this, but one of the things a lot of states do is they suspend driver's licenses if you can't, uh, if you fall behind in your court debt. We should get rid of that. There are a lot of states that are starting to uh, recognize that that's an unfair process that doesn't really serve uh, a, a, a purpose. And so they're changing their laws, Illinois most recently and Nevada most recently, getting rid of laws that say you can suspend a driver's license over court debt. Because think about it, you lose, your, you lose your driver's license. Now you can't drive to go get your job. How are you going to pay for your court debt? Uh, and so the, the, the end result then has to be our state legislatures have to get rid of fines and fees and get rid of elements in the system that, that primarily punish people because they're poor. Yeah, and it, it's interesting. Like, I live in California, so California's done away with, uh, you know, losing driver's licenses over inability to pay. Uh, last year, there was a Supreme Court decision, the Humphrey decision, which... Um, you know, prevented the use of bail, um, uh, you know, keeping people in custody simply because they were not able to pay bail. There's a lot of resistance even in California uh, to to that one. Um, so it's going to be an interesting battle. There is. And it's a tough it's a tough battle to win because there's a lot of people making money on the criminal justice system. Um, and those are generally the ones who are pushing who are pushing the fight against the reforms. So I think this is a really fascinating issue. And I only actually became aware of it when I went to the cashier justice uh, uh, seminar at John Jay College a couple of years ago, uh, where, where you were as well. Um, but thanks for sharing uh, these stories. Hey, no problem. I appreciate uh, appreciate it. And and uh, I hope more people buy uh, profit and punishment and, and, and learn about this, this, this problem that exists in, you know, in every state in America. Tony Messenger, his book is called Profit and Punishment, How America Criminalizes the Poor in the Name of Justice. I strongly recommend the book. It's a good read, very interesting and eye-opening, even for somebody who now is somewhat familiar with these issues. Uh, thank you for coming on Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justice for George Powell, all one word, dot com.